Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. And we are on day 2159 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I have delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 27 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. I do thank you for being here again today as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Last week we saw Jesus behind those closed doors with his disciples as they proceeded with the Passover meal. Jesus abruptly announced that one of them would betray him. He was teaching us and his disciples lessons about acceptance, being able to accept those that might treat us unkindly and even betray us. How do we accept those who hurt us or betray us? That is the question from last week's message. Now, you might not condone a person's lifestyle. They might be living in a manner that's contrary to what you feel is best according to God's word. But we're still to show them love and acceptance. We're still to reach out to them regardless of whether we agree with their particular lifestyles or not. That's the most important lesson we can learn. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and it bears repeating, that if you claim to love Jesus, then you must also love Judas. After washing all the disciples' feet, including Judas's, he placed Judas in a position of privilege and honor to his left-hand side at the Passover meal as they sat around that table. And not only that, he offered Judas a piece of bread dipped in that lamb stew as a fellowship offering to him, showing that he loved him and accepted him. But even after that, Judas's heart was unchanged. Verse 27, it tells us last week, as soon as Judas took, Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. He went out, and it was night. Unbeknownst to Judas at that point, it was the darkest night that he would ever know, that he betrayed his rabbi that he had followed for over three years that very night. In our scripture today is John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. It's starting on page 1674 in your pew Bible. They were still behind those closed doors after Judas left. And Jesus turned to his remaining 11 disciples, and he starts to teach them. He taught them, first of all, agape, authentic love. So follow along as I read this passage for today. When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you. And remember, that's the double amen. It is true, it is true, I tell you. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I recently read a short little book from Francis Schaeffer that he wrote in 1970. He was a Christian apologetics person. It's a tiny volume, but it has a weighty message. You won't find anything in it about bumper stickers, fish emblems, lapel crosses, or cleverly mass bracelets. For that matter, you won't even read anything in that book about biblical doctrine or church membership. Instead, the book is about the one true mark of a Christian, and that is love. John 13 is a penetrating, challenging chapter for us to read. Jesus taught his disciples about humility and acceptance and teaches us the same. Lessons that would not, only imp would not impact them completely until many months or years later, as John was reflecting 60 years after this on what Judas really did. That his betrayal was now a matter of history. Once Jesus, Judas disappeared into that night, Jesus continued to review those fundamental teachings of the Christian doctrine, and he begins with the most important one, and that's love. We look at verses 31 and 32. Throughout John's narrative, Jesus had spoken about his coming hour in which the Son of God would be glorified. Jesus announced that his arrival of this hour by using a Greek term called doxa, and he used it five times in these two short verses. Doxa derives from a verb dekeo, which means to believe, to think. To be glorified is to be revealed in such a way as to be thought of as good. To be glorified is to be, to be vindicated in the eyes of all witnesses throughout all time. Therefore, the concept of the glory of Jesus in this vocabulary meant that his teaching was true. The truth of his identity would be vindicated in the eyes of all humanity. His identity, the word in human flesh, he became flesh and dweller among us, would be confirmed by its going to the cross, rising from the dead, and then ascending into heaven a few weeks later. With the departure of Judas, he went out into the darkest of nights to betray him. The process of Jesus' glorification had begun. We move on to verses 33 through 35. Jesus understood that the betrayal of one of his disciples, and because of that, would ultimately end with him conquering death for all of humanity. He became sin for us. He was the Lamb of God who take, took away the sin of the world. However, the 11 remaining disciples knew nothing about that. They didn't understand it. Jesus had often predicted his death and had promised many times that he would rise from the dead. In all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he, he repeated it. But his closest followers, those 11 remaining disciples, could not connect those dots. As far as they were concerned, Judas's betrayal and Jesus' death represented an end of all their messianic hopes. They had hoped that he would come and set up his kingdom, and of course, that they would be his cohorts with him, to rule and to reign over not only Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, but the entire world. 
Therefore, Jesus had to dumb it down for them. He reassured them in a simpler, more direct terms. Jesus knew that he had to speak to them as they were children. He said, my children, or one translation says, my dear children. And I brought Mr. Froggy along to help me illustrate this. You'll notice little loops on his feet. My, my granny made this, and she would slip her feet into those loops and dance with Mr. Froggy. But I needed a head representative for today's message. Have you ever had children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews where you're just not getting what you're trying to teach them? I know we have in our family. So you take them by the sides of their heads and you look into their eyes and you say, listen to me. And Jesus said, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you must love one another. Your love for one another will show to the entire world that you are my disciples. And that's what Jesus had to do with his disciples because they just weren't getting it. He had to say, my children, my dear children, listen to me. Listen to what I am saying because you're not getting it. He wanted them to know that God's plan has not been thwarted. His impending ordeal was a necessary part of their ordeal. And Jesus revealed three facts to them to reassure his disciples that he was, his leaving was imminent. It would be that next day he would be crucified. Second, that people would look for him. And thirdly, that no one could go with him. He had to do this himself. He was the only sacrifice for the sins of the world. And the announcement stunned his disciples. Jesus had been the center of their world for three and a half years. They never expected that to change. They expected him to become the king and to rule and to reign forevermore. As the men sat there in bewildered silence, Jesus issued them a completely new command. While he would no longer be among them physically, part of that support would now need to come from one another. Just as he had loved them, they were to love one another. The men had finally had to learn that lesson from their master that they were to love one another. They were accustomed to Jesus' love for them. So now he expected each man among them, the remaining 11, to cultivate that same type of love between each other with the other 10 men and many more after that. If you look in your bulletin insert on the side with a picture of the verse, of John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it says a new kind of love. This was a new commandment. The Greek word agape is rarely found outside the Bible. The Greek language celebrated the term for love, which was eros, which is an intoxicating, impulsive love between a man and a woman, that physical love. And then they honored philia, that warm, noble affection for deep friendship that we might have with our closest of friends or our family members. But there was no word for the love that Jesus was getting across here. Agape remained woefully undeveloped as a term in this first century. The human authors of the New Testament needed a Greek word that would express a kind of love that Jesus taught. And he commanded to his disciples in that upper room that night. The most common of Greek terms just wouldn't suffice. Fortunately, agape was relatively unknown and largely undefined at that point in time. So it perfectly suited his, their purposes when writing this New Testament. 
It was like an empty wineskin which had poured in that distinctively Christian meaning. While believers began to adopt this new kind of love, their secular contemporaries decried the steady loss of virtue in the Roman society. More and more, their peers exchanged that venerable filia love, that family love, that friendship love for a fleeting eros, that intense physical love for one another. The contrast could not have been more absolute. The Christian culture, what Christ proclaimed in the world's culture, they were moving in opposite directions, and it was all based and could be seen in this word for love. So let me give you a few examples of the difference between eros and agape. Eros love, a general love of the world, seeking self-satisfaction wherever it can and whenever it can. Agape, a love to make distinctions between choosing and keeping focus on loving one another above all else. Eros, driven by an intense desire, physical desire, primarily out of a love for self. Agape is a free and decisive act. It's determined by the person you're loving. You're loving them because you choose to love that person regardless. Eros is the highest sense, in its highest sense, is used to lift up our feelings, our emotions above the love for the divine. Agape is it relates to the love of God, loving and lifting others up above ourselves without a thought of personal benefit or reward. Eros seeks in others the fulfillment of that intense physical desires that we have, whereas agape is often translated to show love. It's an action-oriented love because we love the person that we're reflecting that love on, love on others' behalf. Based on John's rendering of Christ's teaching and the Lord predicted, given the contrast between eros and agape, it's no wonder that they had to use a new type of love, word for love, in this, this passage. Let me read verses 34 and 35 again. A new command I give you, agape one another. As I have agaped you, so you must agape one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you agape one another. It's a different term for love than was used elsewhere in society of that day. While Jesus walked among them on earth, no one doubted that his disciples were those who were following him, these men who had been following him for three, year, three plus years. And once he returned to heaven, he was teaching them that your love for one another would be that same representation, that they will know you are my disciples, not because I'm here walking with you, but because you love one another. And this is how the kingdom of God would be multiplied across the world. We have billions of Christians in the world today, starting out from the short, the small group of men, 12 men, 11 who remained faithful. The master and the disciple would be multiplied 11-fold at that point, and it would go on to be multiplied many more times. And it reminds me of an illustration. Now, if I were to offer you a penny today, and I would say, well, I'll double this penny every day for 30 days until it multiplied. So the second day, you would get two more cents. Next day, you would get four more cents, eight cents, 16 cents, 32 cents, 64 cents, 128 cents. Or 
I'll say, you come on up and take a million or $2 million out of my hands today. Which one of these would you choose? The penny for 30 days, doubled every day, or $2 million today? And you could have that $2 million. Well, if you're willing to trust the multiplication of this, it's a tricky question, but doubling a penny doesn't seem like it would amount to much. Well, at the end of 30 days, if you doubled that same amount every day, you would be, end up with $5,368,709.12. And that's the power of compounding. That's what the kingdom of God is to do, is we share with each other, we share with one, they share with one, and as we multiply each time, before we know it, the world is populated worldwide with God's kingdom. And that's what he was establishing here, is that power of compounding. And that includes building God's kingdom. Albert Einstein said, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. And he who doesn't, pays it. This is the kind of love that was called for the, these disciples that night to express, that called for agape, the kind that seeks the highest and the greatest good of another. If men had under, uh, trouble understanding the meaning and the terms on how to express it, all they had to do is recall those three plus years that they were Jesus and look at his life and say, that's agape love. Now I get it. He just told me in my face, and now I get it. Finally, understanding what he was meaning. They'd been living with that illustration for three years. As we move on to verses 36 through 38, when Jesus completed his exhortation to the disciples to love one another in his absence, Peter, as he often does, reacted to the Lord's announced departure. We can only imagine what he's thinking. If we read the other Gospels and with it, you will know that everybody else agreed with him also. So yeah, yeah, what he said. His passion cannot be denied. However, his motivation at this point was suspect. What did Christ just tell them to do? Holding their face and saying, love one another. By this, the whole world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And he says, Lord, why can't we go with you? I'll go with you. I'll even die with you. That's not what Christ is just, was teaching them. And all the others chimed in, yeah, 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 we'll do that too. I wonder what Christ thought some days. Shook his head and said, just not getting through. Like homeschooling our kids. Some days Paul would say, it's just not getting through to them. But they eventually got it, as with the disciples. Peter declared his supreme love for Jesus, even to the point of dying. But the impulsive disciple was ready to defend the Lord, but where was his obedience? He told them to love each other, not to fight for him. Jesus would save additional lessons on love and obedience for another time, as we'll read in John chapter 21 in a few weeks when we get there. For now, Jesus start, stated the simple truth that Peter lo Peter's love was as fickle as his zeal was. The kind of battle Jesus envisioned with his disciples cannot be fought with the type of sword that has a gleaming blade, that steel blade, he wanted his soldiers wielding the sword of truth. He wanted to take his words that he had been teaching them for three plus years and say, this is it. 
It's all boiled down into one new command, love one another. That's as simple as it gets. But we try to make it so difficult. For now, he wanted them to be united in that agape love. Let me read you a story from Pastor Chuck Swindoll, who was also the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. It explains the concept well. And John shared with me before the service that it was a year ago that his dad died and that he was certainly impacted by that date in today's calendar. And if I remember, John, you were laying on your back in the hospital getting over COVID and pneumonia or sh shortly after that. Yeah. But it was a rough time for him. But share, listen as I share this story from Chuck Swindoll. So some time ago, a lady had lost her husband and requested that I conduct his funeral. He was an exceptionally good man and matched well with the, this woman. They were the rare sort of couple who constantly thought about others and brought those families and friends and neighbors to Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. As she expressed her desires for the funeral service, she said, I know my husband, if he were sitting here, he would agree. I want the funeral service to honor Jesus Christ. And I have one neighbor in mind specifically. We have tried different ways to reach her. We've had her over for dinner. We've given her tapes and booklets and other gifts. But we've never been able to get through to her. So I said, okay, let's pray right now that she'll be reached in some way through this whole process. So we did. And I stopped by the morning of the funeral to see how the woman was doing. And to my surprise, her next door neighbor was sitting right beside her as a steady stream of church members were coming and going throughout the, that morning. Some brought food. Others helped to clean the house and did chores that her husband didn't get around to. One couple would offer to drive her to and from any um, place she needed to go and even offered to loan her their car if necessary. But most just stopped by to share their sorrow and to cry with her. Well, a few days later, the phone rang. It was that widow. And between her sorrow and joy mingled a voice that spoke, do you remember that neighbor I told you about who was sitting next to me during, after the funeral? Sure, I said. Well, she stayed until everyone else was gone. And she said to me, my, what love. Were all these people members of your family? Her remark became a perfect opportunity for that widow to say, yes, but a different differently than you're thinking. We're all part of that same family. That's that family of God. Now, if you have a fish symbol on your car, that's fine. People will relate that to a Christian witness. If you display a cross around your neck or in your home, there's nothing wrong with that. People will know that, that you're religious. If you carry a Bible around with you everywhere, people will relate that you must believe what you're carrying around. But if, on the other hand, if you display love that is authentic to the core, observable love, that people will know that you're followers of Jesus Christ. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In our application for today, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38, is summed up, it isn't love until you give it away. 
Now, Reba McIntyre wrote a song and sang a song about that. I don't know if she had this passage in mind when she wrote it and sang it. But the world struggles to understand love. Most people think mainly of romantic love, that eros love. Think of a young couple or when you were young and in love. That mysterious sickness that overtakes someone like a delightful case of the flu. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't concentrate on anything other than that person you love. The disease which only time has a cure for. The kind of love that comes and goes as it pleases and trumps all logic. And no one knows its causes of it. We just pray that we can keep that love throughout our marriage. Many accept the existence of familiar love, that philia love. In some families, that's a very close bond. Others, it's a, usually a conflicted love. In many families, love is to be endured on special holidays or other occasions, but only long enough as absolutely necessary because that love is based on their loyalty for their family members, not, not necessarily with kindness. And that philia love may be entirely optional. But if you look at your bulletin insert on the other side, the application for today, authentic love, agape, it embodies the finest qualities of romantic love and family love. It permeates and always characterized by kindness. Moreover, agape appears in three distinct qualities that sets it apart as distinctively heaven-made. The first quality is authentic love is unconditional in its expression. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus expressed love for all kind of undesirables or deplorables, those people that are on the fringes of society, including Roman collaborators, prostitutes, thieves, religious zealots, rich rulers, working class people, unredeemed lawyers, and the desperately down and out. He turned away no one who desired love from him and he wept for those who chose not that love. Authentic love loves without conditions. The second quality is authentic love is unselfish in its motive. Agape expects nothing in return for kindness and gives out without regard to self-interest. Of course, it's easy to love those who love us back and show gratitude for our love to them. But authentic love isn't based on that which we receive back. It's one who gives kindness regardless about the ability of being returned, including those who are simply unwilling to show gratitude and love back to you. Loving the unlovely for their sake is essential. That is agape love. And the third quality is authentic love is unlimited in its benefits because agape is its own reward it always benefits the giver of agape love. The satisfaction of authentic love never fades. We give because we love to give. We do because we love to do. It's both unconditional and unselfish. Many acts of authentic love often feels, leaves the giver of that love as they've received the most joy and reward by giving. Unlike the thrill of romantic love or the loyalty of family love, which lives in our emotions and may be hidden within our heart, agape love cannot be expressed without action. If we agape someone, 
we have to act. We have to reach out. We have to share. We have to help. We have to endure. We have to encourage. One anonymous poet understood what authentic love really meant. A bell isn't a bell until it's rung. A song isn't a song until it's sung. Love isn't put in your heart to stay. Love isn't love until it's given away. And that's the passage for today. Is love isn't love until we give it away. Not out of selfish motives for our physical desires. Not out of friendship or kinship. Although neither one of those are wrong types of love. But agape love gives and gives and gives some more. Without expectation of return. Because if we give out of an agape love, then we will have its own reward of that love for someone else. Next Sunday, now that Jesus has completely blown the disciples' minds with this new commandment, they were troubled. So he brings them tranquil words for a troubled heart. Next week, we'll read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. So I'd encourage you to read that this week in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage today. We thank you for the new commandment that you've given to us that we're to love one another. And by this, the entire world will know that we're your disciples because we love one another. Help us to do this. Help us to agape one another, to care for them regardless of the circumstance, regardless of how another person lives or acts, that we'll still love them, that we'll encourage them, that we'll show the love of Christ to them, that they might realize their need of him and be brought into your kingdom, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.